Good morning, everyone. Great to uh, see you all here today. Uh, we are in a sermon series uh, in the book of James, and today we're up to uh, really the centre of uh, James, uh, James chapter 2, verses 14 to 26. <clears throat> and uh, we're going to read uh, this passage together and then we'll consider um, what God is saying to us um, through it. So if you have a Bible, uh, open it up, keep it open through the sermon um, so you can follow along. Okay, this is God's Word. What good is it, my brothers, if, some, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that, say, that, can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith itself, by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works, and the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works, and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works, when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. This is God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful that we can gather here like this and hear your word. Uh, we thank you, Father, for the opportunity to consider what you are saying to us through it. Uh, we pray that you would give us understanding, that you would give us wisdom. Father, give us also uh, discernment uh, for our own hearts that we can see where we have gone astray or where we might uh, have deceived ourselves. Uh, we pray that your truth would enlighten our minds so that we can know you and know uh, the salvation and know the freedom that we have in Christ uh, to be able to live for your glory. And so be with us now. Uh, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, the book of James is all about real faith. That's the theme of James. James is all about real faith. It's all about what does real faith in Jesus look like in practice. See, if, if you're a, someone who believes in Jesus, you know, you've understood the gospel, you've made a profession of faith, what will that look like in your life? as day today goes by, what practical difference will that make? And this passage in James gets to the very heart of the matter. Okay, this, this is a passage that's often called the theological centre of the book of James because it focuses on the very 
centre of what James is trying to communicate uh, through this book. And at the heart of this uh, very important passage is a very important and personal question. And the question is this. Do you here have real faith? Okay, is your faith real or is it fake? Is your faith in God genuine or is it counterfeit? Is your faith in God alive or is it dead? That's the question. And I hope you can see this is the most important question you can ask yourself because it concerns where you stand with God. It's a matter of where you are going to spend eternity. So there's no more important question that we can ask ourselves. Uh, you can tell that that's the issue. This, the issue really is salvation. And you can see that in the first verse where James asks those two questions. But the second question that he asks is, can that faith save him? Okay? Does, can the faith that you have save you? Not, can the faith that you have make your life work out really well? You know, can it make you feel good about yourself? That's not the issue here. The issue is salvation. Is your faith saving faith? Or is it useless faith? That's the issue in this passage. There is no more important question than you can ask yourself than this. Do I have saving faith? And so we're going to consider that question today. We're going to do that under three headings. If you've got a, a sermon outline sheet, you'll see them there. That we're going to look at the issue that this is addressing, the examples James gives to help us think through it, and the application. So first, let's think through this issue. Uh, that's laid out in these first, uh, this first paragraph, verses 14 to 17, where James writes, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So here, James is showing us that real faith is not just what we think in our heads and it's not just what we say with our mouths. Real faith results in works. Now, what works is he talking about? The context tells us. If, you just, if you've got a Bible open, just look back at the paragraph before this, verses 8 to 13, and that's where James was talking about God's commands. And he summed up God's commands with that, that's, that command to love your neighbour as yourself. And so real faith produces that kind of life, a faith that loves others, a faith that cares for others. And so in this illustration that James gives in verse 15, he, you know, he says, let's say you've got a Christian brother or sister who isn't coping in life, they're so poor, they can't even put clothes on their back, they can't even put food on their table. Now, if you, if you have ability to help, but you just pretend to care and offer nice sentiments like go in peace, be warm and filled and don't do anything to help, Okay, what is that? That's just mere sentimentality. You don't really care. You're just offering words that are empty. And James says in the same way, if your faith is like that, you know, there's words, 
but there's no reality. It's just sentimentality. It's not real faith. It's dead. Now, this is classic James because James, not all of us like this, but James says it like it is. He doesn't pull any punches. James is like the guy who takes a sledgehammer to a high tea party and goes crazy. But it's for good reason because he is so concerned that there are some people who, who read his letter, that there are people in the churches of that day who were self-deceived. He's worried that there are people who, who may have prayed the sinner's prayer at one point. He's worried about people who ticked the Presbyterian box on the hospital form. The people who may even got up here, stood here, and made their profession of faith, and yet there is a huge disconnect between what they say they believe and how they actually live in life. Okay, is there a, a disconnect? I believe in God, but what does your life say? That's what he's asking. And he's worried that some of his readers don't get it, that there is no life, and yet they think there is. He doesn't want anyone to be self-deceived. And so we need to be thinking today, what if James is talking to me? What if I'm that person who, who, who says I believe, you know, who sings the songs at church, who talks the talk, and yet Monday to Saturday, there's nothing there. There's no evidence. There's a lot of things that would make you question whether there is real faith in your life. James does not want any of us to be at ease with things in our lives that would contradict our profession. And that's why verses 14 are getting at this by saying, you know, if someone says he has faith but has no works, can that faith save him? And, and what's the implied answer? No, a faith without works cannot save you. Why? Because it's dead. Dead faith can't do anything. See, James is saying, if your faith doesn't result in works, you're not saved. That's the bottom line. Now, here's the issue with that, the issue we might raise. When James puts this so bluntly, that if you don't have works, you're not saved. We can put up defences. In fact, over the history of uh, the church, there have been plenty of defences put up about this passage because it is so blunt, because it is so direct and because it is so challenging. And one of the defences has been, maybe James is overstating his case. You know, you probably heard about uh, Martin Luther, you know, the great reformer. You know, we just sang that Reformation song. Martin Luther, huge instrument in the Reformation. Initially, he struggled with this passage in James. He, he called James an epistle of straw, initially. And sometimes people can, can use that to, to, to say, well, maybe James is, you know, a bit over the top. We don't have to worry about that, or I don't have to worry about that. And uh, in, in fact, some people go so far as saying, well, James is actually contradicting the Apostle Paul. And especially when you get down to verse 24, where, where James sum, gives a summary statement, uh, where he says, uh, 
a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Now, when you are in a church that celebrates the Reformation every year, you know, faith alone. And you hear James saying that, you're like, whoa, hang on a minute. Did he just say that? Is that right? And it becomes even more complicated when you put it side by side with Romans chapter 3, verse 28, where uh, the Apostle Paul writes, a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. And here's James saying a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And so, you know, what? this is confusing. Or is it? What do we make of this? Well, you've got to read both Paul and James in context. And Paul and James are both dealing with very different issues. For instance, the Apostle Paul, in Romans 3, when he wrote that statement there, Paul was dealing with a major misunderstanding about how you get right with God. Because a major misunderstanding, which is very common, virtually everyone makes this misunderstanding. People think, if there's a God, the way to get right with him is by the good things I do. You know, people imagine that life is like one huge long test and uh, when you get to the very end of your life and you stand before God after you've died, that what God does, he, He checks out your life, He weighs up all the good things you do and if you've done enough, so the thinking goes, then God lets you into heaven. And Paul was dealing with that, but what did Paul do in Romans? He smashes that assumption to pieces. He shows in Romans that we're not basically good people who occasionally do the the wrong thing, but we are sinners. And sin so taints the things we do that even the things that we think are good, the, the deeds we do that we think, hey, that was a good deed, are so tainted by sin that they are actually offensive to God without the work of Christ for us. And so there's no way we can gain our acceptance by our works, by by the deeds that we do. Instead, we need a saviour. We need a saviour who can rescue us from our sin and achieve God's acceptance for us on our behalf and then give that to us as a gift of grace. And see, that's what we have in Jesus. And the way we receive that is, is by faith alone. And the good things we do add nothing to Christ's work. It's all done by him for us, given to us as a gift, received by faith alone. That's the issue Paul was dealing with. James now is dealing with a completely different issue. He's dealing with the issue of counterfeit faith. He's dealing with the issue of what some have called dead orthodoxy or easy believism or what's sometimes called nominalism. So that's where you're Christian by name, but not by practice. See, the underlying assumption of everything James says here is that real faith, okay, the kind of faith that receives Jesus as Lord is a faith that always results in a transformed life. Real saving faith will always change you from the inside out. You can't have real faith in Jesus without that transformation then happening. Real faith will always change your heart of stone into a heart of flesh. Real faith will always begin this 
this dramatic tra transformation, this process that happens in your life where the love of self is now replaced with the love of God and the love of neighbour. And that's why this brother in need scenario, it's just so straightforward. You know, how can someone who's experienced the compassion of God in the gospel then look at other people and have no compassion? It's, that's not possible. In fact, the, the Apostle John, he uses the exact same reasoning in 1 John 3 verse 17. He says, if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him. How can the love of God be in that person? It's not. That's the point. And so James and Paul, dealing with two very different issues, Paul was countering those who were thinking that you are saved by your works, whereas James is countering those who are thinking that saved people don't need works. And so for James to say that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone, he's saying that our works are the proof. Our works are the evidence that we are right with God. They're not the way you get right with God, they are the evidence that we have been made right with God through Christ. In fact, theologians who have wrestled with this big question, they've, they've actually come up with a way to put James and Paul into one sentence. When uh, one of them said, uh, you know, we are justified by faith alone, but not by our faith which is alone. We are justified by faith alone, but not by our faith that is alone. Do you know who said that? Martin Luther. Okay, he came round on James. <laughs> but here it is, real saving faith will always result in a transformed life. The transformed life is not what saves you. The transformed life is the evidence that you have been saved, that you have real faith. And so the big question for all of you today is, can you see that in your life? Can you see a transformation that's happened? Because if not, you're not saved. That's the first thing. Now, like I said, James doesn't want any of us to be deceived. He's not just getting stuck into the people who tick Christian on the census form, but only attend church on Easter and Christmas. He's not just thinking about those people. Yeah, they're included, but this is something that every single one of us do need to consider. In fact, if we think we're above being deceived in this way, perhaps we're in more danger than we realise. Okay, think about many of the people Jesus confronted in his day who were clearly not saved but seriously thought they were. See, we need to think. We need to, we need to examine ourselves and James helps us do that now. And he does it by giving us three examples that clarify the nature of real faith and we can, we can use these to compare our lives and, and see, do, do we fit? You know, can we see these things in our life? Now, the first example is a, um, an example of, of wrong faith, um, but the last two are examples of real faith. So, have a look at these three examples. Uh, the first one's in verses 18 to 19, and this is the example of demons. So, verse 19 says, uh, You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. 
Now, the point James is making there, this is very confronting because he's actually saying it's possible to believe the right things about God and still not be saved. See, this belief, you know, that you believe that God is one, okay, that, that belief is the very heart and foundation of all true Christian doctrine. Uh, this, this is a, a summary statement of, of Deuteronomy 6 verse 4. You know, uh, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Okay, that verse was called the, Sh the Shema. And every Old Testament Israelite was brought up to recite that verse every single day because it is the very foundation of all other truth. Okay, unless you believe that there is one true God, everything you believe will be skewed. It will be off. It will be wrong. Because... There is one true God and everything starts by knowing him. And so the reasoning could go, surely if you believe this statement that God is one, then surely you're okay, surely you're saved. But James says, hang on, if that's all you've got, if that's all you've got, I believe in God, you're no better off than a demon. Because that's, demons have that. Demons believe in one true God. Demons know who God is. They're not doubting that. They're not questioning that. In fact, demons knew who Jesus was, remember? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. See, demons know the truth. They believed the truth. They believe there's one true God. They're not indifferent to that either. It says they shudder, which means they feel the implications that there is one true God. And yet they're not saved. They're not saved. And do you know what that means? It actually means that hell is full of sound theology. And so clearly sound theology alone is not the evidence of real faith. You can have sound theology and still not be saved. And maybe James is actually going after the Presbyterians on this one. The Presbyterians who pride themselves on their theological correctness, who pride themselves on their theological savvy, but have no fruit of real faith in their lives. Maybe he's going after the ones who love a good theological debate, love getting into the details, and yet their lives are empty when it comes to actual love for God and love for others. It is actually a dead orthodoxy. That's, that's what James is exposing with the demons. The demons have orthodoxy, but it's dead. And he's saying, you need to check your life. Is that what you have? Dead orthodoxy. How do you know? Look at your life. So that's the first example. Sound theology is good. James says, you do well. Okay, you've got to have sound theology. But sound theology alone is not the evidence of real faith. The evidence is a transformed life. Okay, the next two examples James gives are examples of genuine faith. And the first one is Abraham. So have a look at verse 20. Verse 20 says, Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not our father Abraham justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? And you see that uh, faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works 
And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God. So here James is saying, let's just look at Abraham's faith but look at it in action because that's how we know it's real. And he reminds us of that time when when God called Abraham to do something extremely difficult. Okay, I don't know how you cope with a command like this as a father. Uh, but I, God told Abraham, I want you to take your, your son, your only son, whom you love, and sacrifice him. Now, that's an extremely costly command. You know, for Abraham, he couldn't... You know, it's not like he had 20 sons... And if um, the runt happens to go missing, no one minds. Uh, and it's not like Abraham could, you know, find, get a, have a replacement for Isaac. It's, it's, he's beyond that. He's 100 years old. And so this command, very costly, give up the one thing you love more than anything else. And yet when you read the story in Genesis 22, the thing that really hits you is God gives the command and in the very next verse it says, Abraham got up early in the morning and got on to doing what he was commanded. There was no hesitation, no deliberations. He just got on with obeying God. Uh, Now Hebrews 11 does actually help us out there. It, It tells us what he was thinking as he was walking to the mountain. It says that Abraham, you know, he was thinking like this. Hang on a minute. God promised that he's going to give a big family through Isaac. So if God's now telling me to sacrifice Isaac, that can only mean one thing. God's going to raise Isaac from the dead. Okay, so that's, that's what his faith was. That's what he was thinking. So he had the faith. But how do you know that faith was real? Because he was prepared to follow through and obey God, even with that costly demand of sacrificing his one and only beloved son. That's how you can tell his faith was real. Now, just, you know, he took the knife, he's about to plunge it into his son, and just as he's doing it, you know, God calls out, stop, provides a substitute. Isaac is spared. Phew. But James says this is what, this one act of, of obedience justified Abraham. How? In the sense that it proved his faith was real. His, his, his works proved that his faith was real. Now, what's that saying to us? How does, that, how does that help us examine our own faith and see if it's real? Well, it goes like this. If you want to know whether you have real faith or dead faith, have a look at what happens to your obedience when it becomes costly. Have a look at what happens to your obedience when it requires sacrifice giving something up that you love. You know, for instance, if, if um, God commands you to do something and it's convenient and it's easy and it suits what we're already going to do anyway, easy. But when God commands us to do something that requires cost, now you're able to see real faith. You know, so when obeying God means actually losing the approval of your friends and family. When obeying God means losing respect of your peers at work, maybe even putting your job on the line because you're not willing to toe the line with some policy at work that means you have to be unfaithful to God. 
Okay, now you're going to see, is your faith real? Do you have the courage to put up with the criticisms, to put up with the rejection, to have people say, you're a bigot because I don't understand the bigger picture? Are you willing to, to suffer loss in those ways? Are you willing to have rejection, even persecution? Okay, how do those people throughout the world have a gun to their head saying, you know, deny Jesus? They won't. Real faith, it's the only way. See, that's what the example of Abraham says. It shows us that real faith produces a willingness to obey God even when it comes at a cost. That's how you know. And then there's another example, uh, the example of Rahab. So verse 25. In the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? Now, uh, Andrew read this story uh, in Joshua 2. So Rahab was a Canaanite woman who lived in territory that was about to become Israelite territory. And she had heard all of the reports about this nation that was coming. She had heard about the God of this nation, the God of Israel. She had heard about how God had rescued this, this nation from Egypt, how he had brought them through the Red Sea. She heard the gospel of this saving God. And she put her faith in the God of Israel, the one true God. She believed in him. But how do we know that faith was real? By her actions, she sided with the people of God. And so when the spies came in to spy out the city of Jericho, she sided with them. She risked her life. She put her life on the line to protect them rather than giving them up uh, to the authorities. And, that's, and, and so you can see her faith was real. Why? Because it was faith that produced courage to do that, to stand with God's people even at the risk of her own life. That's what real faith does. It, it actually works. Okay, Real faith works. And then James ends with this closing illustration. Uh, For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Now just think about that illustration for a moment, maybe not too long. Have you ever seen a corpse? See, the thing that's so confronting about seeing a corpse is that it is so still. There's no life. And James says, make sure your faith is not like that. Okay? If your faith is not lived out in love for God and love for neighbour, it's as dead as a corpse. Okay? It's no help for you in the end. Okay, what do we do with this passage then? What's the application? Okay, how do we respond to this? Well, clearly this passage is calling us to some serious self-examination. Clearly we're to, to, to have a good hard look at ourselves. And I don't know about you, but if this passage has made you really question your salvation, maybe that is exactly what God is wanting you to do. Because maybe there is no evidence of real saving faith in your life. Maybe your belief in God hasn't produced any love for others. Maybe your, your belief in God, your, your theology, is just dead orthodoxy. You know, maybe you are content just living for yourself. You're not willing to put God first in everything. 
you're not willing to put others' needs ahead of your own. Now, if that's you, and you are thinking, perhaps I'm not saved, because I don't see any evidence. If that's you, what do you do? What do you do? You repent of your self-centered life. And then, and then what do you do? Do you try harder? No. You cry out to the Saviour. You cry out to Jesus. Jesus, save me. Save me from myself. Save me from my selfishness. Save me from wanting to just live for myself. Because only Jesus can fix you. Only He can change your heart. So cry out to Him. He will not reject you. He's the Saviour who wants to save you. But what about those of you who do have saving faith? Because praise God, you can see evidence of that in your life. But what if you're still troubled? Because James is very blunt. He's very confronting. And perhaps some of the things he said has troubled you. Perhaps like me, you can think of times where your profession of faith and something you might have done in a moment of weakness is very inconsistent. You know, there might be times where you do believe that God is everywhere, that God sees all. And yet you think, well, then how could I go and do something thinking I'm in private when in fact I'm not? See, what do we do with the inconsistencies in our lives? What do we do when, in times of weakness and sin, when we look back in the day and we realise that that wasn't courage, that was fear driving my actions? What do we do with that? Well, one thing we don't do is shrug our shoulders and think, ah, no big deal. We don't do that. No, no, it calls for repentance. It calls for turning away from sin. Okay, because the Christian life is one of repentance and faith. Repentance is not just a, a one-time act, it's the whole way through. Whenever we see sin in our lives, we turn from it, we turn to God for grace. And that's what James is calling all of us to do here. That if we see things in our lives that are inconsistent with what we say we believe, <clears throat> then we must turn from those things and turn back to God. And this passage is its clearly calling for greater fruit in our lives. God wants us to be fruitful. He wants our faith to show itself in the way we live. And we've been learning all about that in James. You know, remember, we've got to persevere in trials. We've got to stand firm in temptation. We've got to be not just hearers of the word, but doers of the word. We have to not treat people impartially, but with mercy. And now James is calling us here to be people who show compassion toward those in need, to make sure that our theology is not just in our head, but applied in our lives. We're, we're to be people who who obey God and are faithful to God, even when it's costly, even when it requires courage. God actually wants us to be consistent in all of these things. Now, where do we get the power to do that? Is the answer, try harder, dig deeper? No, the answer is faith. Where do you get the power to live for God? The answer is faith. It's faith in Christ. You look to Christ. You look at the things he has done for you. Look at the way he has treated you. You know, in all of your misery and need, in sin, what did Christ do? Did he say, you know, good luck, be warm and filled? 
without giving you what was needed? No, he gave. He gave himself for you. You know, when we think of Isaac, you know, Isaac spared at the last second from being sacrificed. What about Jesus when he was put on the cross? Was he spared? No, he was sacrificed so that you can be spared. And when we see Jesus going to that cross, we see courage. We see our Saviour willing to put the needs of others ahead of his own. We see him willing to give up everything out of love for the Father and love for sinners, love for others. See, that's the work that saves you. That's the work that secures you in God's love forever. But when you see Jesus doing that for you, when you think about Jesus doing that for you, what does that do? Number one, it puts your heart at rest. Okay, because you know if you're in Christ, you're safe forever. But at the same time, it empowers you. You don't want to go on living as if Jesus means nothing. You don't want to look at that work on his, his work on the cross and go, you know, I'll just live any way I like now. No, you look at what Christ has done. And that, that will melt your heart. That will give you a, a new desire to turn away from the things that are inconsistent with the gospel, with what Jesus has done. That will enable you to live fruitful, faithful, loving lives because that's what God is calling us to do from this passage. Right? Faith apart from works is dead. But faith with works, the works are the evidence of real faith. So may God May he empower us to do that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the, uh, how blunt uh, this passage is, uh, that none of us can go from here indifferent to this very uh, serious matter of where we stand before you. And we do praise you, Lord, that salvation ultimately is not dependent on how well we live or how many works we produce. We thank you that it is dependent solely on what Jesus did, on his perfect work for us. And yet, Father, we, we know that we can, we can say we have Christ. We can rejoice in what Christ has done. And yet, Father, there are times when we live in ways that, that we, in our own minds we can't understand. How could someone who, who believes in the gospel do that? So, Father, we pray that you would convict us in those moments, that we would turn from them that we would turn back to Christ and we thank you that he is a, a saviour who forgives, who has done everything that's required to make sure that we are safe forever. And Father, we also pray that uh, if there is any here today who, who have been challenged about where they stand with you, where, where they're headed for eternity, Lord, we pray that uh, this would be the day of salvation, that you would enable them to embrace the saviour, by faith and have that assurance that in him, once in him, in him forever. And we pray this in his name. Amen.